When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. My guest today in the program is Hale Liza Gafori, uh, who is the translator of a new book of Rumi poems called Gold, out from New York Review Books. Hale, welcome to the program. Thank you. So one of the things that you kind of asked me about when I originally reached out about doing the interview was sort of, you know, the scope of the podcast in terms of what are we thinking of as as the performing arts, and uh, and I have interviewed poets and and performance poets on the on the podcast before, but I'd just like to know to what extent was poetry for Rumi a, a, an embodied live performing art? I I, I don't know if he, I don't think he would have called it performance, but certainly a live embodied experience. Yes. Um, he was whirling uh, at times with his friends who were musicians, some of them playing music with Shams of Tabriz, who really felt um, that music was a central music, listening and whirling dance were central practices that bring us closer to the divine. So he, they would gather in these gatherings called Sema gatherings and Rumi would whirl and the drum would be playing and he would compose spontaneously verse. Now, not all of his poems were composed this way, but it seems a good number of them were, and they're very rhythmic. So you can almost hear the drum inside the text. Um, so that was a very live and embodied experience. It was, you know, this idea of being an empty vessel, one hand facing the sky, one hand facing the ground, like a conduit whirling 360 embrace, create, uh, embrace of creation. And then these poems would come through and he would recite them, compose them, recite them, and people would take them down for him, dictate for him, you know, so... That was certainly a live embodied experience. Yeah. The only you really do get the sense of. Sorry. The, you the, get, the, you... Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> the reason, <laughs> yeah. The reason I wouldn't say performance is just as I don't think they were inviting an audience or he was thinking of it in that terms, but certainly, as you said, a live embodied experience. Yes. Mm hmm. And they really do have that kind of improvisatory quality to them. Like there are parts of them that almost feel like you're reading, you know, some medieval beat poet or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I, I think that's a that's a good way of describing him. <laughs> you know, the, the Ghazal form, too, you know, which calls us over and over to the repeated, you know, line or word, you know, so he would cycle back. 
say another line and cycle back to that word and say another couplet and cycle back to that word. And you could almost feel that people were in the room with him hearing this return to the phrase or return to that word that is the, you know, the refrain in the poem and probably just like, ah, you know, every time that word comes back, ah, there it is, you know, and the genius of how he would cycle through different, um, you know, um, sort of, um, I'd say almost subject matter and even different voices and then return to the refrain. You know, it's very interesting form, the Ghazal form. It allows you to leap, leap around. And the only thing that sort of is the thread that connects everything is the, is that repeating word. So yeah, there was a improvisatory quality to it, a rhythmic and uh, performative quality to it in that way. And you're also a, a performer and musician yourself, is that right? Yeah. And and you've you've drawn on Rumi's work in some of your performances. What, how does that work live in the room when it's presented for an audience? How does that kind of change the experience of the poetry? Uh, you mean um, when I when I deal with it performatively? Yeah. Um. I guess I would have to ask an audience member, but I know for me, <laughs> right, for for me, uh, you know, I'd like to really, well, let's say this, Rumi invites us to eat the poems. You know, he says, eat these mm-hmm. poems like Egyptian bread. And I do feel that um, translation is the most intimate way to engage with a poem. I do feel like I ate the poems. I let them flow through my blood. I woke with them. I rode the train with them. And so when I'm on stage, you know, offering these poems, um, they are coming out of my body, I feel, you know, and uh, it's in it, it's, it, it's not like I'm reading from the book or it's in me. It's in my, it's in my being, um, not every single poem from the book have I have I um, you know committed to memory in this way, and I do have to brush up on them. But that happens, and then um, it's wonderful to bring the Persian in to sing the Persian to give people uh, a sense of the astonishing rhythm and rhyme that's in the original text. So I like to do that, and I play with musicians, and they are accompanying me, and we're making music with these very musical poems. That sounds wonderful. I, I, you, you uh, told me about a, a performance of this kind that I was not able to attend. So hopefully, I will be able to attend one in the future. It sounds like a really yeah. great time. Could you give us a bit more of a sense of kind of who you are, your your brief biography, and how you came to be interested in Rumi, and how you came to translate this selection of poems? Sure. Um, I, you know, I I grew up in Jersey. I was born in New York City. Uh, both of my parents are. Um, Iranian, and they came to America in the 70s uh, as doctors with, you know, suitcases of books, um, some of them Persian poetry. uh, And poetry was very much alive in in our house. Uh, As a child, I would hear my father recite Rumi. He was more Molana, which is what we call him, Molana, which is what Iranians and everyone across the Middle East calls him, or Mevlana in Turkey. But Molana means our sage, our master. And that was his name. What was he? That's what he was called during his lifetime as well. But anyway, that's a side note. But um, Molana Rumi would be, uh, was recited in the household. I heard him as a child and I didn't understand the poems at that time. Uh, but I had a sense that there was something magical going on 
and I could hear the rhythm and rhyme. And then, and, and I, so I remembered it, you know, then my parents started having poetry nights and their friends would come over and they would discuss the poems. And then eventually I started reading the translations um, in English. And then in a way those pointed me back because I, you know, as a child and adolescent, I wasn't that interested in my heritage. I was more interested in being American. So it's kind of sometimes the outsider can point you back to the wealth of your own culture, you know? And so then um, I started eventually singing Rumi in Persian. And eventually in 2016, I started translating. And uh, mm. that started as, as just a, a hobby, you know, in terms of I read one poem and I wondered, is that really what he said? I don't know if I believe it. And I went to the original text and I thought, nah, that's not how I would translate it. So then I did that one. And then I thought, oh, let me try another. Oh, let me try another. Oh, let me try another. And then eventually I had a manuscript. And how did you, I mean, his his, his body of work, as I understand it from your introduction, is quite large. And this is a... a uh, not incredibly long book. How did you select which ones you would include? Was it just the ones that kind of spoke most powerfully to you? Or did you feel like there were certain sort of uh, high points in his work that you wanted to have represented that that fans of Rumi would expect to have in a book like this? How did that selection process work? Yeah, well, I should say, you know, I sat with my mother a lot and read these poems aloud with her. Um, she's a wonderful you know, lover of poetry and reciter of poetry. So we would read through poems together. Sometimes she would show me ones that she liked, and then I would not like some of the ones that she liked and like others. So eventually at the end of it all, you know, it was the poems that I was most attracted to. Um, poems also that I thought speak to our times. For instance, you know, the one that's uh, Ghazal 2144, you know, he didn't title his poems, so they have numbers, but 2144 is a very unique poem in which he kind of setting up these apocalyptic visions and asking us, mm. who are we going to be in the face of crisis? Um, what kind of generosity are we going to muster? What kind of compassion are we going to muster? Are we going to be able to hold on to our joy and actually share it and point others to it while we're dealing with all kinds of agonies and challenges, you know? And so he wrote this 800 years ago, but it speaks a lot to our times as well, you know? So I also wanted to, um, you know, engage with this idea of alchemy. Uh, the, the book is called Gold because, you know, for the Sufis, um, the alchemy is happening with consciousness of, you know, moving ourselves during our own lifetimes into a more expansive state of compassion, into a more expansive state of generosity and love, that this actually feels better and that this is the gold of existence, is this feeling state of mm. interconnection, of feeling like we're, you know, that we are connected, not isolated, separate beings that need to be driven by our own narrow, stifled ego, but that we can actually experience uh, you know, have a more expansive life in, in terms of our feeling states and that this is very liberating. So this is the gold. This is like the golden consciousness, you know, that the Sufis invite yeah. us to attain. Also the ecstatic. What is the ecstatic? You know, what is awe? All of these, you know, uh, awe is so important in Persian mysticism. And, you know, the writer, uh, Temp Terry Tempest Williams, American writer, wonderfully defines awe 
as the moment that ego surrenders to wonder. And mm. you know, this is very, she's American, but this has a very Sufi flavor, this definition. And she just gets it right on the, and she's got it right. It's perfect, perfect definition. But, you know, this, this is so important. And, and so I really wanted to kind of allow people to feel into those experiences through these poems. So that those were things behind you know behind the choices desires to get to communicate that. Well, earlier you told us that uh, Rumi invites us to eat the poems, and I feel like we've sort of been talking about the food without eating it. So maybe let's <laughs> let's uh, next have you read one of the poems, perhaps the, the poem on uh, page ten. Sure. Um. Yeah. Okay. Your laughter. And I'll just say about this one, you know, I talked about the refrain. Um, so you will hear the word laugh, laughter, laughing. That's the refrain. And, you know, usually the refrain is at the end of the couplet, but sometimes as a translator, you find, actually, it's better if I allow the refrain to slink through the poem and not put it at mm. the end. In some in some translations, uh, meaning of different poems, I did keep it at the end, but this one, it's slinking through. And also I'll say this, you know, the, in the Ghazal form, each couplet stands on its own as sort of an independent thought. I like to say, I've said this before, it's kind of like a string of tweets almost, you know, in that each couplet <laughs> sort of stands on its own. So when you listen to the poem too, you know, it's not a narrative poem, it's a poem leaping from thought to thought and laughter is, is coming in, in each time in each uh, stanza. And it's a sort of different facet on laughter. So your laughter turns the world to paradise. It tears through me like fire. It teaches me reborn in emptiness. I emerge laughing here to learn from love, new depths of laughter. I've been short on courage but I have a heart of sunlight straight from the king's hand. I stir up laughter even in those who fear joy. Crack open my shell, steal the pearl. I'll still be laughing. It's the rookies who laugh only when they win. Last night, the spirit of dawn came to my room and gave me a lesson in laughter. Our blazing roars lit the morning sky. When I brood like a rain cloud, laughter flashes through me. It's the habit of lightning to laugh through a storm. Look at the furnace, look at the stones. See the glowing red veins, gold, laughing in fire, daring you. Prove you're no fake, laugh even when you lose. We're fodder for death, so learn to laugh from the angel of death. He laughs at the jeweled belts and crowns of kings. All that splendor is just on loan. Treetop blossoms erupt in laughter. Petals rain down. Laugh like the bud of a flower, hugging the ground. Its hidden smile opens to a laugh that lasts a lifetime. Thank you for that. That's incredible. What, a, what an incredible poem. I like this one too. Um, I w <laughs> it has that image of gold that you talked about, that, yeah. that kind of uh, gold as, as a kind of very multivalent symbol. Um, yes. the, this very joyful approach to spirituality is one of the things that I find very appealing in Rumi's poetry. And I think probably a lot of people 
feel that way. Um, to what extent would that have been experienced as, I don't know, a, a, a kind of spiritual revolution in his time? Was he working within a tradition that had already kind of oriented spirituality in that way? Or was, would this have been a revelation to his his medieval audiences? Or I don't know if medieval is quite the right term, but his, his right. yeah, he was audiences from 800 years ago. Yeah. 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 Um, well, I think it's, you know, it depends who you talk to, right? So there were people in that time who were Sufi mystics, who believed in the ecstatic, who believed that we are here partly to, to experience our joy and that um, part of the fun of life is getting through the aspects of us that are killjoys, you know, the aspects of our own mind, right? And so this was this was a part of the Sufi tradition. Now, not all people really focused on that part. Um, there were conservative uh, people of the time, Islamic theologians, who believed that music and dance were sinful or a distraction. At, at, at least a distraction, if not sinful. And then there were Sufis who said, you know, music and dance is my portal to revelation. And um, the joy that we experience in this time is divine, you know? And so I think there was a range, you know, and, and Rumi sort of gave himself over to the latter once Shams of Tabriz came into his life, you know, when he was around 40 years old, 38 to 40 years old. And, um, you know, that's when he started writing poetry. So it was in those musical experiences and in this like heartbreaking relationship that he had with Shams, very complicated relationship that sort of, he was broken, torn open, you know? Yeah. That image of breaking open is, is so beautiful in that poem. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, this idea of, um, reborn in emptiness, I emerge laughing. You know, emptiness is something that we escape or it's a word that's not considered something we would want to embrace in English. Emptiness sounds kind of scary, but in, you know, Persian mystical thought and a lot of Eastern philosophies, the emptiness is the place of non-attachment where the mind is quiet, you know, and we enter a space and a silence and the narratives aren't running, the doom-ridden thinking isn't running, we have this space. And um, in that space, I'm reborn, reborn in emptiness, I emerge laughing, here to learn from love new depths of laughter. You know, so this idea too of being able to learn uh, love, learn laughter, you know, that's kind of interesting. But, you know, that, that mm-hmm. you know, we don't have manuals how to be human when we come into this earth. But there are certain philosophies and cultures that, you know, um, are willing to um, recognize, acknowledge the, the, the difficulties of being human and kind of guide us, you know, so that's part of Sufi, Sufism. In, in one of the other poems, he says, forgive me if I'm getting this quote wrong, when I am, I am not, when I am not, I am. And that speaks to that sense of emptiness. And that that also strikes me, I mean, yes, very Sufi, very, we might say very Taoist, but also, you know, there are echoes of that in, in Christianity as well. The idea that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. It's by emptying yourself, you find your true self. Uh, I mean, that, that, that seems to be something that is 
you know, uh, widespread enough in different spiritual traditions to make us think it might be just deeply true. <laughs> yeah, I, agreed. Agreed. Absolutely. It's a universal, right? That the, you know, and sometimes, you know, Rumi will say things like, you know, I'll be frustrated, dull and barren as stone if I don't step out of my petty self, take off its tight shoes and wade into rubies. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's, let's wade into rubies. You know, and in this poem, this laughter poem, you know, when he says it's the rookies who laugh only when they win, you know, it's the rookies who laugh only when they win. It's the sort of uh, the one that's let go of his ego, let the fires of love. He talks a lot about being raw, being cooked, you know, the word is on the raw ones, the rookies at life. They haven't yet been cooked. And so they're just so caught up, for instance, in winning and losing. And, they, you know, they, it's like, you know, the cooked one is a little more relaxed and is able to access a sense of humor, you know. So that line is very important, you know, in the in the philosophy and in, in, in the poem. What would, what would you say is the kind of vision of God that we get throughout these poems? Like, what is, what is the theology that Rumi is communicating? Yeah. Um, well, you know, first of all, in Islamic thought, you know, Allah, God, is the all, right? Is the all-encompassing. So there are 99 names for God, although really there's more than 99, but we say the 99 names of God. And they're um, a bunch of adjectives. And they are describing different attributes, um, the type of different sort of types of, of generosity, of kindness, of love. But there's also oppressive aspects, you know, to this God. It's the God is not all um, love and kindness. So there's this sense in, in that, you know, everything is God. We are all a part of God. Everything is God. Then at the same time, while we can see that, oh, yes, this petty self that we're talking about is also part of God and this big, you know, connected self that's expansive and that is like this victorious self is part of God. But there's this idea that, okay, let's decipher then. Let's decipher between feeling states. So while everything is God, which means that we can live in a sense of acceptance and kindness towards ourselves and each other. Let's also then decipher and say, well, it feels better to be in, in a more generous state of mind than in a greedy state of mind, which is often feels kind of uh, stifling and um, mm -hmm. isolating. You know, so there's this idea of like, let's let's um, let's decipher and then, you know, build our own uh, experiences in this life Um uh, that then we are reflecting sort of the best of the divine, you know, the best attributes of the divine. Um, so, you know, I think in a way there's a, there's an, a, a kindness there and also an invitation, you know, uh, in this conception. And there is that rhetoric of invitation constantly in the poem. There's a lot yes. of the imperative in these yes. in these poems. That's right. There is a lot of imperative. You no, know, come like, dance, sing. Yep, yep. Come and dance. Come and dance. Come and dance. Berachso, berachso. Dance, dance, dance. Right. And then he says, like in another one, mayandish, mayandish, which means don't think, don't think. Quit pouring thoughts like kerosene on everything fresh and green, burning it to the root. You know. So he's sometimes he's really given it to us. Or like when he says, you know, if you've made a habit of drinking vinegar, don't blame the vine. 
ditch the vinegar and ditch the vendor who doesn't deal in life's nectar, you know, poor loves wine and quit peddling misery. You know, so there's this constant imperative, but actually I shouldn't say constant because it's not constant. And what I wanted to do in gold was, was, was also share his confessional poems where he's speaking from the eye and he's sharing his own struggles so that we realize that, yes, he was a preacher. You know, he was a preacher before he was a poet. And he is still a little bit preaching to us, or at least inviting to us, uh, inviting us in a kind of playful way uh, and a poetic way. So it's like, it's, it's nice to listen to. But he's also confessing. And so we can trust him, you know. It's not all telling us what to do. He's confessing. And actually, you you brought up a poem the one on page, uh, where is that? That the one starts on 20. Is that what you're talking about? 34. 34. Yeah. 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 Which is kind of, yeah, let's, one. let's hear that one. Yeah. Okay. So this is one where yeah. I feel he's, he's being honest about his own struggles so that we can maybe feel, you know, uh, more able to take his imperatives. You know, he says, I saw yeah. myself, Right. He says, I saw myself sharp as a thorn. I fled to the softness of petals. I saw myself sour as vinegar. I mixed myself with sugar. An aching eye seeing through pain, a stewing pot of poison. I was both reaching for the antidote. I touched compassion. I touched mercy. I was a cup holding only the dregs, I poured in the water of life. Raw and callow, I followed the ones already cooked by love's fire. In the dirt on love's path, I found the medicine that ensouls sight. My armor thinned to a silken scrim, I sifted the soil that gives vision to the blind. Love said, yes, you have arrived, but don't think it's your doing. I am wind. You are fire. I stoke your flames. Wonderful. Yeah. that I, I love that image of my armor thinned to a silken scrim. Yeah. That is so, so touching and, wow. and, and so psychologically plausible. You know exactly what he's talking about when he says that. Yes, yes. I'm and I'm so glad that you picked that line because that line it contains in it the word letal fat, which is a word that was not translated in other translations. And actually the weird thing is is that you know he says shad gash fat shad and it was translated as share. So that concept of becoming Latif, or in, entering letafat, which is this state of delicacy, of permeability, of softness, of the place where the exchange can actually happen, you know, was lost in previous translations. And it's such an important line, you know, and concept in Sufi mysticism that we're here to, you know, to thin down these walls between us, to thin down the armor. When he says in another poem, they say there's a door between one heart and another, how can there be a door where no wall remains? Yeah, that's wonderful. And I think it is that that sense of, you know, have, having gone on this journey that he describes in this poem, you know, saying I was a thorn and, and 
that creates a sense of invitation that he's saying it's not that he's sort of preaching from on high. These are some eternal yes. truths. There's something experiential behind them. He's saying, I've actually done this. I was where you are and now I'm on the other side. And, you know, yes. he's inviting you to, to, to transform yourself as well. Yes. Yes. You know, exactly. And I love that about him. You know, I love that invitation because I know for me, I was, you know, in, in a much more sort of, uh, I don't know, uptight, you know, and kind of maybe thorny, uh, you know, uh, personhood. I had that long ago, you know, and I worked on that. You know, the, the idea that mm-hmm. transformation is possible, that we can soften here and strengthen there, you know, is very important in in our in our path, in our journeys as humans. And I feel like, yeah, he really does invite that and he really does admit, you know, um, that I mean, an aching eye seeing through pain, a stewing pot of poison. I was both. I mean, that's surprising, right? That Rumi would say such a thing. No one usually thinks that Rumi would actually say that he was once seeing through pain and stewing <laughs> a poison. He called mm-hmm. Zahra's poison, you know? So it's like, it's very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that image too. What's the what's the image with the eye again? Could you repeat that? Yeah, an aching eye, as in right the eye we see through. Because I know this is audio, not not the letter I. Yeah. Ache, uh-huh. You know, an aching eye seeing through pain. The day poor dad. And that so captures that feeling of when you're in that you know hardened uh sort of dogmatic spiritual yes. mindset that can that that can really color your your sense of all of creation you see through your own eyes and and that that is it's almost like a, an image of a lens or something like that exactly exactly i mean yeah you know the, i was once in guatemala and um this language chaquiquel is an old like i guess, I guess proto mayan language i'm not sure what you exactly would call it but I think it's proto-Mayan, if that's correct. Uh, but there was a guy named Walter who spoke it. And he said to me that the way that they say, how are you today, is how are you seeing today? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Because <laughs> right, reality could be anything. And some days we see it. Someday our lens is money and someday our lens is clear. Someday our lens is rosy, right? We have all these possibilities. So yeah, that's a big yeah. part of Sufism too. And Rumi's poetry is constantly talking about how we're seeing. This reminds me of sometimes I'll see on social media, one of my friends will post a, a picture of themselves and say, you know, I look so good today. And and I, my thought is often, well, you look kind of how you do every day, but I'm glad you're you're feeling you're in a good mood. You're able to see, you know, what's beautiful about yourself on on today. Like that's that's more of a maybe more of a, a comment about you know your subjective feelings than it is about you know external reality. But still valid. You know, I'm happy for you. Um, you mentioned also that Rumi had been uh, a, a preacher for you know, for half a lifetime before he became this yes. ecstatic mystic poet. Yes. How would you, how should we think of his... Well, oh, half, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> how, how should we think of his relationship to to organized religion? He, t- he touches on that in a few of the poems that you translate in this volume. Yeah, 
Well, you know, I think that um, it, mixed mixed bag and um, something that changed through his lifetime. Although, you know, yes, he was Muslim. I mean, there's this this whole critique of of um, past translations that say that you know Islam was erased from his poetry and so on. Um, he was, of course, an Islamic theologian born into a line of of Islamic theologians. Uh, his father and grandfather. He, as a child, he was fasting. As a child, he was praying um, in the Masnavi, which is the book that he closes out his life with, you know, that book, um, you could say that he returns a little bit more to the Quran in that work than he did in the Divan Shamsa Tabriz, which is what I largely translated from. But in both, you know, there's, there's a respect for the religion, for the spiritual tradition. And, and, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't have dogma. One, one thing that, that he didn't, want is dogma. And one thing that he didn't like was the hypocrisy among uh, many of the preachers and scholars of the day, which is something that we see now too, and we've seen through human history. But, you know, he questioned that, you know, why aren't you walking your talk, you know, was a big question for him. And he tired of the hierarchies and like the obsession with prestige and the obsession with rank and, you know, ladders, these ladders. And he said, I don't want anything to do with it. I'm down, I'm getting off my, my high horse, you know, and I, because he was, you know, uh, famous in his silk robes, preaching, very loved. But he said, you know, this isn't where it's at for me. I want to actually live this. And so he went into a kind of different vein of existence that Shams of Tabriz led him into, which was the more ecstatic experience and where the poetry sort of emanated from. But he's always grounded in, in you know, this, this religion. And he also is speaking of universals because as we said at the beginning, those thoughts that he's bringing to the table are universe is universal wisdom and it's in a lot of traditions. So I think people can relate to it from regardless of what tradition they're from. Uh, because as he says of the mass Navi, I'm going to the root of the root of the root of religion, you know, so that place of universal wisdom. Yeah. You mentioned Shams of Tabriz a bit, um, and we've we've talked about him a, a little before. Do you want to read the poem on uh, page twenty that gets into that relationship a little bit, uh, a little yeah, bit further? The, the um, mast, which uses this word mast, mast means drunk, uh, intoxicated on existence, intoxicated on love, and also mast in colloquial means plain old drunk, and you know in one poem. That's going to be in the second volume because I'm working on the second volume. He says, for instance, uh, Jesus was drunk on God's love. His donkey was drunk on barley. <laughs> you know, this is great. I love that. So, you know, so people, so people can be drunk on lots of things, you know, but the mystical drunkenness, the mystical intoxication is to be drunk on this love, this like, shoreless, boundless ocean of love, this 360 degree embrace of creation, awe, the awe that we can feel. This is this sort of intoxicating force, right? So in this poem, one could say that he's exploring all kinds of drunkenness or that he's talking about one kind of drunkenness. But I think uh, once we get um, into, well, you know, nature and then in the middle of the poem and what he's talking about, well, you'll hear it. You'll hear it. Let's just listen to the poem. Okay, here we go. 
You leading the caravan. Look at your camels. Head to tail, all of them drunk. The king is drunk. The captain is drunk. Friends and strangers, they're all drunk. Gardener, listen. Thunder beats a drum. Clouds pour the wine. The garden is drunk. The meadow is drunk. The buds and thorns are drunk. Whirling sky, watch how the elements whirl. Water is drunk. Air is drunk. Earth is drunk. Fire is drunk. Don't even ask about the unseen. Spirit is drunk. Intellect is drunk. Imagination is drunk. And the mysteries of eternity, they're the drunkest of all. Liberate yourself from the tyranny of self. Be humble as soil and you will see every particle of soil is drunk on love by the creator's design. In winter, the garden is still drunk. The roots of trees secretly sip wine. You have a jug of love's wine. Pour for all in equal measure. There's been enough brawling. Friends, enemies, admit it or deny it. They're all drunk, all whirling at the core. Keep pouring. Loosen the knots. Only a head steeped in the wine of love will tear off the turban and crown. Pour the reddest wine for the ill and ailing. Let their sallow faces flush with fire. Let them burn with love. God's wine is light and delicate. You can drink countless jugs. Shams of Tabriz, in your presence, no one is sober. Infidel and believer, ascetic and winemaker, they're all drunk on love, whirling through and through. That's so great. Mm. Could could you talk a little bit about what his relationship with uh, Shams was and, and, and who Shams of Tabriz was? Yeah. Um, Shams, well, Shams of Tabriz was, you know, this wandering mystic, this free spirit. They called him Parande, which means bird. Uh, he would, you know, live in one place and then leave when he felt. So he was kind of flying about, you know, not, not necessarily, um, settling in one place. And, um, he was a minimalist, you know, he slept supposedly on a mat in, in a room with not much in it. And he was a mystic. Um, he had, it seems I've heard that he had read all the books that had been written on mysticism and many of which were eventually burned uh, during the Mongol invasions. So he had absorbed a lot of the material um, through books. And also he was, um, you know, according to, to Rumi was, you know, the doorway to the sun. That's what he called him. You know, he, he was, when he says friend cave, when, when, when Rumi says that to him, friend, cave, the cave, you know, um, is a reference to the cave where Muhammad heard the verses of Gabriel. So when uh, the verses of the Quran from the angel. So when, when um, Rumi calls Shams his cave, he's saying, you're my portal to revelation. You know, you're the one that opened the doorway to me. And so, you know, they got along very well, it seems. They had a great time together, although it was also um, tormenting in that Shams disappeared, left without telling him. And apparently, you know, there were jealous disciples 
one of his sons was jealous and they drove him out of town. Then uh, Mullah Narumi got very depressed and called him back. And that's when he wrote his first poems. His first four poems were, you know, calls to Shams to come back. Um, and so his son took those poems to him and, and a letter as well. And, um, you know, uh, they brought him back. And then eventually he disappeared again when he seemed to have died and maybe was murdered by one of, but maybe, we don't know. But, um, you know, so it was a tumultuous relationship. There was a lot of love. And, you know, we can't understand necessarily or know necessarily, you know, how many levels was this love on? Um, it was a, it was the love between a uh, disciple and mentor. You know, it was the love between two friends. Was it the love between two lovers? You know, it's a, it's a deep spiritual love. I mean, when someone comes into your life and turns it upside down and opens you to music and opens you to your creative spirit, because again, he wasn't writing poetry until Shams came into the picture. I mean, to be in love too with that freedom and that creative uh, energy that kind of was open to him. And also to uh, be in love with the person who brings you closer to your conception of God, you know, who really, uh, you know, gets you connected in a way that you've never been connected for before. That's a tremendous love. And yes, it could be completely platonic, you know, but is, 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 uh, is deeply, deeply, um, powerful and intense. So I don't know. I think there's all possibilities in this, but there's no doubt about it that there was this, um, you know, relationship between, you know, this mentor, this is my mentor. This is my guide. This is my doorway to the sun. You know, he says in one poem, you shattered my cup, you shattered my cage, light, feast, triumphant blessing, friend, trickster, haven for my drunken heart. You brought my spirit to a boil, turned my grapes to wine. You know, that alone there, you brought my spirit to a boil, you turned my grapes to wine. Um, you lit a fire to the fragrant wood and body of song in me. Watch the smoke rise. You know, this is a great uh, poem to Shams too and shows us the intensity of what he did for him. You know, he brought him to the ecstatic. So one could just be in love with that. All of that, you know, that's plenty. <laughs> so very possible they weren't lovers. You know, I just want to leave it open. You know, <laughs> I think sometimes yes, people's yeah, resistance yeah. to that is like a little intense. <laughs> right. It's a little like, huh, it's something else going on here maybe. Yeah. Yeah. But it's funny that we use the word platonic to mean, you know, non-sexual. That's, that's sort of how that's popularly used now. Um, but actually you know, Plato in the symposium talks about love being the sort of, you know, it, it, personal love, love between two two people being the first rung of the ladder that leads you to love of, of the divine and love of yes. the, uh, the, the form of the good. So it seems like in that way, you know, yes, it was a deeply platonic uh, uh, love that they had for each other. It was a love that helped them to ascend to a, a greater understanding of the divine. Yes, 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 yes. And, you know, and, you know, that friendship, friendship, you know, they, they say that God is in the room when two people are in the room, right? So that exchange between two people sometimes activates our understanding of, of, of the divine, you know, is the in the exchange and in feeling it through another person. So absolutely. 
I think the poem on 76 will, will also kind of uh, feature in, into this discussion of love in, a, in an mm-hmm. interesting way. Would you like to read that one? Sure. <clears throat> Between the curtains of blood, blooming gardens of love, lovers gaze in awe, the fruits of their labor, beautiful, bountiful, a face of God. Their work has just begun. Reason scolds. There are six directions, six directions only, no other way through life. Love laughs. There's another way. I've traveled it countless times. Reason saw one market, opened a shop, and started haggling. Love saw many. The old mystic Mansoor trusted in God, love, truth, in its omnipresence. Stepping down from the pulpit, he said, truth dwells in me. Blasphemy, said the caliph, hang him from a tree. Unchained and in chains, Mansoor danced his way there. At the gallows, he rose. Lovers drink dregs and brim with ecstasy. Stone-hearted men of reason seethe in denial. Reason warns, forget union, forget surrender. The void is full of thorns. Love replies, the thorn is in you, my friend, constantly sounding the alarm. You call that existence? Pluck the thorn from your heart. Let the garden bloom. Silence, my words are clouds. Shams is the sun. Let his rays reach you. Hmm. That's wonderful as well, yeah. Uh, there's a, a theme in this poem that runs throughout Rumi's work that is a, a real skepticism of, I don't know, a certain type of human uh, pretense to rationality, maybe. Um, could you talk about that theme? What is he critiquing there, and and what is he kind of uh, counterposing as a better use of human intellect? Right. Beautiful, beautiful question. Beautifully set, asked. Um, a better because use he is of- obviously still an intellectual, right? I mean, he's he's a brilliant mind. It's not like he forgets all of his, you know, right. his, his learning. Even this poem as an allusion to another spiritual teacher. So he's clearly somebody who's engaging with the, this tradition in a in a way that is scholarly. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Um, you know, th- one thing that comes to mind is the word vasvas which which i which i like to speak of when i speak of rumi because he uses this word um quite a few times in his work in his poetry um and he and it's vasvas means the doom ridden thinking that spins in the mind so i think it was denise levertov that spoke of the imagination of doom and disaster and this is a very very important thing for us as humans to face because and especially as Americans, every time we go on one of these rants or cultural um, uh, moments where we are, you know, fear is being injected into us, fearful narratives are being injected into our beings. For instance, you know, weapons of mass destruction, weapons of mass destruction, which wasn't true, you know, but as, as an excuse to sell a war, to sell a war, you need to make people scared. Right. Okay. So this is one use of the mind. So the mind, the you know, the mind goes into this space of paranoia 
It's spinning narratives. It's calculating. It's thinking about oil and then creating these scenarios and then putting fear into the public and then justifying a war that's unjustifiable. And there we go. Um, right now, the enemy is not 6,000 miles away, as the narrative tells us, as the narrative in America tells us. Now the enemy is down your street. The NRA is behind a whole um, uh, construction of narratives and messaging that is saying that, you know, there are people in this country who want to take away your freedom and they want to take your property. And so then we have, you know, neighbors shooting neighbors, you know, the enemy is not 6,000 miles away. Now the enemy is here. You know, this is so dangerous. Mm -hmm. The thorn, the thorn, the constant thorn, you know, constantly sounding the alarm. This kind of idea, it becomes, though, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because once we start to say, oh, my God, there's enemies, 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 then we start acting like that. Then our actions are then, uh, you know, uh, offensive or, or hurtful, attacking, then yes, then there are enemies, you know, or we are living in a sense of scarcity and there's these scarcity narrows, scarcity narrows. And then, you know, in order to maximize profit, you're dumping uh, PCBs into the Hudson River instead of disposing of them in a way that's more um, responsible, but maybe costs a little more. And now you've created scarcity because now the river, yes, it doesn't have fish anymore. You know what I mean? So these mm -hmm. narratives, they matter deeply, they create our world. And so when Rumi talks about Vasvas, he's warning us about what the mind is capable of doing, of, of, of what stories is it capable of spinning. And, you know, reason, the rational mind sometimes thinks in short term, sometimes thinks in this very calculated way, thinks in this stifled ego way of like, you know, uh, how am I going to maximize, you know, profit in this situation? Well, I'm going to sell more guns. And in order to sell more guns, I better spin some crazy doom-ridden narrative. Okay. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? I'm trying to relate this mm -hmm, to our culture. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, I think it's important because I love this country and I love this earth and I love Iran and I love every country on this planet. I would love to see us in a state of wellness. And, you know, I think that one of the things that um, hurts us is this like lack of acknowledgement about how we are using our minds, you know? Right. And right. What, what part of our mind are we allowing to um, influence legislation, right? Legislation matters. It affects everybody's lives, you know, everybody's life. So what, what do we do? So anyway, when I think, you know, when he talks about this, like, you know, he calls it reason versus love. I think he's just, he's talking about a, a, a short-sighted, egoic, calculating, um, part of the mind that is just concerned about itself and willing to do any kinds of things like spin crazy narratives to sort of get what it thinks it needs, you know, and then love, which is like, you know, now nah, I'm not going to think in terms of X versus Y, me versus you. I'm not thinking that way. I'm going to think in terms of uh, interconnectedness. I'm going to think in terms of I have a finite time on this planet and I want to enjoy it and I want you to enjoy it. And I do think it's possible for us all to enjoy it. It's not like one or the other, you know, my enjoyment doesn't have a cost uh, that you have to pay, you know, <laughs> like mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah. I, it's, it's, I, yeah. 
<laughs> it's that, I mean, I, it reminds me of the distinction that Martin Buber makes between the, the I it relationship and the I thou relationship, right? It's this, this objectifying instrumentalizing rationality versus just the sort of communion of, of your presence with the presence of another person. I mean, that, that seems to be similar to what Rumi's talking about in this poem. Your presence in the presence of another communion and union. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And yes. it's not about, you know, what you can get from somebody or, or, right. or even maybe what you can learn from them, but just about enjoying that, that sense of, of communion of two souls. Yes, I, I believe that. And I, I believe that that is such a precious and beautiful way of seeing and being. And that as we do it, you know, in our own lives, you know, can it sort of trickle up, you know, and can we also even wonder about someday, you know, that our legislation is a little bit flavored by this universal wis- wisdom, you know, what would that look like? I mean, it would be a uh, an earth with with less catastrophes that you know and someday war may be considered as absurd and as and be as outlawed as slavery it was you know slavery mm-hmm. was once was once accepted you know and uh, and then it was not and then you know it was outlawed um will war someday be outlawed i mean it's an absurd endeavor it's not a not a proper way to resolve conflict. I mean, we don't accept it on the playground. Why do we accept it on the global <laughs> on the global stage? You know, so all of these yeah. things, yeah, these are all kinds of ways that we can allow our sense of interconnection and love and recognize our dependence and inter- interdependence. You know, as something to to celebrate and and actually see what that means in terms of collaborative possibilities versus competitive. You know, and that idea mm-hmm. of it's the rookies who laugh only when they win. That's the mindset of the competitive mindset. And he says, you know, relax, you know, and I just brought all of these intense things into the room here when I spoke of the doom ridden narratives. But, you know, I want to emphasize that there is the possibility of relaxation and of cultures and governments even that encourage our relaxation, you know, and that we encourage Mm -hmm. each other and poets that encourage it, you know, the long exhale. The long exhale. <laughs> well, I think that's a great uh, note to end on. Yeah. Um, so, th- thank you so much for uh, giving me uh, this this time and for writing such a beautiful uh, set of translations. And I'm very uh, excited to learn that there's a volume two in the works. So, definitely let me know when when that's available. I will. Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's good to talk to you, Andy. Thank you so much for your interest and, and curiosity about the work.